Welcome to the Science Show on Cambridge 105. Today, we look at what happens when crops like wheat leave the farm. In the case of wheat, the seed would have been planted in October, or it could have been planted in spring if it was spring wheat, obviously. We take up the story, though, at the harvest of the crops in August. We visit a storage facility where the produce from hundreds of farms are taken by lorry to be tested, stored and ultimately sold to major bakeries and millers. As you'll hear in a moment, there's a lot of science along the way. Find out what happens in the industry after this bit of a tune. This is The Science Show on Cambridge 105, the community radio in your city. We start with a hello from me, Roger Frost, and not just me, but another voice we'll be introducing in today's show. Here with me is Niall. Nice to have you back, Niall. Thanks, Roger. Yep, I'm Niall, and I'm a university student, just studied science. And I'm here to remind you that this is the show, the only show, with 30 minutes of the kind of science that happens in the world of work and that they never told us about in school. And as we're in Cambridge, we've a special focus on the sciencey things happening here in town. Today's guest scientist works on the science side of Camgrain, a firm which takes credit as the largest central grain storage operation in the UK. I visited one of their facilities. There are several in the middle regions of England, and I found myself in a massive depot, one that I'd unknowingly passed many times on the road, though it was almost hidden in the fields of Cambridgeshire. Our scientist is Dr Andrew Wingate, who will be telling us how Camgrain ensure that the grain that they store, sell and ultimately comes to us is entirely fit for purpose. Camgrain has a clean wheat plan that prepares the grain for food production. They hold a Grade A food standard rating from the British Retail Consortium, a rating which is a requirement of many food manufacturers in the industry. Well, that's good. Uh, but a clean wheat plant, so what is a plant for wheat plants. Is it just me that thinks that a piece of machinery in the industry shouldn't be a plant? That's a good point. It is. Anyway, as we said, with the quality standards set so high, it would be a tough call for an individual farmer to get their wheat up to standard and to get involved in the selling of their crop. They surely just want to focus on growing the stuff. Yes, indeed. So, 20 years ago, Camgrain was set up to help. They are a farmer-owned central storage cooperative. Camgrain would offer not only to store the grain, but also to provide facilities for analysing and cleaning and distributing it to the various sectors of the industry that do milling and brewing and making your breakfast cereal. It's a lot to do with efficiency and quality, as we'll now hear from Andrew Wingate. I started by asking Andy to explain where Camgrain fits into the supply chain. As far as I know, a farmer grows wheat and next I buy some flour from a shop. So where does Camgrain fit in? It's a farmer-owned central storage co-op and where we fit in is that we offer a storage solution for farmers but we're also operating to improve the efficiency of the supply chain to get a better deal for the UK farmers. You get economies of scale, we are able to guarantee the product that we are delivering to the processor which really turns the industry on its head. Traditionally a farmer would have a contract with a merchant, that merchant would come and sample the grain on his farm, he would sort of walk over the heap that he's got in his barn, take a few samples with a spear, 
do the analysis. The, the key analysis on wheat that they're looking at is protein, okay. moisture, falling Hagberg number, and density, also referred to as bushel weight or, or hectolitre. In recent years, there's also been a bigger focus on mycotoxins as well, which is very important, especially when it's concerning with food use, because yeah. um, these are the toxins that are left over from a fungal infection that can occur on the wheat if the weather's not favourable. Okay. So the farmer is then delivering his grain to a mill, because the, the merchant is there just to match up the two effectively, like yeah. a dating service if you like. He'll buy the grain from the farmer at one price and he's obviously selling it on at a different price. But at the end of the day, the people that are buying the grain are going to have to come and collect it from the farmer, deliver it to the mill. The farmer can't afford to have a laboratory, but there'll be a laboratory at the mill at the intake. And they're checking very carefully exactly what the farmer's delivered, because in, traditionally in the agricultural industry, it's very much a sort of a buyer beware approach. Because the farmers haven't been able to have big facilities for checking very accurately every single load that's going out, then the mills have always needed to because they need to check what is the actual quality they're getting. The farmer will do his absolute best to get those quality criteria within the parameters that he knows he should for the contract he's signed with his merchant, but it's, it's in the lap of the gods because of the weather and various other things. There's, there's all sorts of inputs you can put onto the grain to, to get the protein where it needs to be, but at the end of the day, you, you test what you've grown because you can't guarantee a quality on a particular field. It's not always wheat. Farmers don't plant the same crop every year. The farmer then rotates the crop. Exactly. So the farmer will, on a particular field, he'll have a rotation. Could be one year wheat, the next year wheat, then the next year oilseed rate, and then back to wheat again. The different land types would indicate a different kind of rotation. And there's a, there's a specific industry of advisors called agronomists that uh, farmers would speak to to get the advice or do the training themselves to understand their soil type and what's going to produce the best profit for their farming business on that patch of land. But it, it all comes down to the fact that if you were just to grow one crop continuously, you might deplete the soil from the particular nutrients that that crop type needs. That might require more inputs that you're going to have to buy. But more importantly, that you might get a build-up of diseases and pests that are specific to that crop type. If you don't have a break crop, and put something else in there, then you might get this build-up of disease and you'll get lower and lower yields and possibly lower and lower quality. At the end of the day, farmers are all businessmen and they want, they want to maximise their profits. Okay. Around us, we see great big containers with all these various seeds, but you're not simply a storage organisation. The farmer isn't, isn't particularly aware of all the quality of his grain. I mean, he's got a rough idea from a few samples they took, yes. but they will load up a lorry, 29 tonnes, off it goes to the mill, they will analyse that very carefully yes. and they, they may come back to him and say well actually the quality on this load is this, this and this and it's supposed to be that, that and that and if you fall below the requirement then you're going to get paid less money for it right. and he'll get the phone call, are you willing to accept less money for your load and it's a difficult position for the Isn't farmer it? because you know what can he do, he's, he's up against a big, you know, big company basically, he may have to take the knock or you know, the alternative which is even worse is that the mill say well actually the quality's so far out that we actually can't accept it at all oh. and so all the cost of that delivery is going to come back to the farmer and he's going to have to try and get it tipped off somewhere else which is a very pressure situation but, but Camgrain where we fit into the supply chain is to try and turn that model on its head so that's a very much price taker sort of confrontational model and with our partners we're trying to have a very much more collaborative approach so for example on the the Sainsbury supply chain contract where where Camgrain farmers provide all of the wheat that's milled into flour for all of the in-store baked products in Sainsbury's to keep the whole thing sort of in the UK if you like 
in that supply chain, so every single load comes in from the cam grain farmers at harvest time. We test every single load coming in on all the major criteria to check the quality. Uh, we will then store that appropriately, you know, the better quality stuff and the stuff that doesn't quite meet the grade, etc. We'll, we'll be able to segregate it to maximise the value of every single load. And then when we deliver it out, we will blend to ensure that the quality that's being delivered to the mill is exactly the, the quality that the miller wants. And there's a huge benefit to the miller to have a consistent quality on every single load throughout the season. So, so he can set up his mill to the parameters of what he's expecting and he hasn't, doesn't have to invest so much in intake infrastructure and, and storage on his facility. He can invest in milling capacity, which is his core business activity and he can get the consistent product coming through. And we, for example, we test all the products that come out of Camgrain sites. You know, we test them before we release them. And if they're not within spec, according to our laboratory analysis, we don't let the lorry go down the road. And so we've got to a situation with, with, where you build trust with your people you're supplying to. And so they use our test analysis. You mentioned one or two tests we'd never heard of. So I'll walk you through the, what happens in the lab when the lorry comes in. So the lorry pulls onto the Weybridge. So the first thing it's doing there is we're measuring the weight of the lorry. <laughs> Pretty basic. There's a robotic arm which um, comes out over the lorry, spears down to the bottom of the lorry, and then there's a vacuum process that then sucks grain. So you get a representative sample all the way to, from the bottom of the lorry to the top. Okay. And it, so this unit is yeah. getting into the realms of statistics for a, for a correct sample. You know, this is very important. And then this robotic arm will do this a couple of times to get a, a good few spear points and you'll get about five kgs of sample I suppose yes. into the lab um, and again all about um, getting the sample to be homogenous we have these sort of splitting devices that you pour the grain into and it, and it divides it up so you don't get a sort of a slug of one bit of the sample going into one machine and a slug of another bit into the sample it's a bit like shuffling the deck if you like it's of the grain so you get, you get your homogenous sample and um, the first machine they'll put that into is usually an NIR machine near uh, infrared reflectance analysis machine and what that's doing is it's a very rapid analysis which is obviously very convenient for our business here because we want to maximize the turnaround Quick answer. we want to know the analysis straight away because we want to know where to tip that lorry so this this machine will measure the moisture content which is incredibly important because grain has a specific uh, moisture content at which it should be stored so you have to obviously dry it if it's too wet mm. you're going to measure the protein oil or nitrogen content the protein level is very important you know higher protein is better lower protein is, is not so good and the, when you're delivering the wheat the protein level is one of the specifications you know bread making wheat 13% protein yes. and then the density of the grain will affect the extraction rate at the mill so that's another criteria they have on the contracts there'll be a minimum density that they're willing to accept so if you fall below that density they might you know they'll pay you less money or they might not accept it so those are three very important analysis that we're able to analyze very quickly with the machine, the tech as it's called. Then the other uh, important analysis that takes a little bit longer is the falling Hagberg number. The, the moisture, obviously that's water content, uh, it's yeah. just percentage. The protein is a percentage and um, the, uh, the density is kilograms per hectolitre. And it affects the extraction rate. A low density grain means that there's going to be a lot of husk and probably very little endosperm. So endosperm, if you cut a grain in half, you've got the sort of there's a husk on the outside, the yes. bran. There's a sort of a large sort of white area, which is the endosperm. That's what yes. becomes flour. And a low density grain will have husk, but very little endosperm. High density grain will probably have more endosperm. So it's, it affects the extraction rate. So the amount of tons of wheat you put down the, the hole in the mill versus the amount of tons of flour come out the other end. Low density grain you got less flour, so the miller's you know, losing money, if you like. Of course. So that's why it's important. And tell us about this falling German name. Falling Hagberg number. The Hagberg is a test that determines how good that wheat will be for producing flour. 
You take your sample of grain, you grind it up into a powder, you mix it with a fixed volume of distilled water, a specific weight of, of wheat that goes into the process, and it's a specific sized mixing vessel, and there's a specifically sized plunger. It then goes into a machine that's set at a, at a specific temperature, and then the mixing takes place. The gluten that's present in the flour, basically, that you've made in a very sort of coarse way, is, is mixing with the water, and it will produce a sort of a gelatinous solution and then you let that plunger fall through the solution. And the more viscous the solution is, the slower the plunger will fall, and that is the falling number. So the falling number is the number of seconds that the plunger takes to get to the bottom of the test tube. Okay. So why is this important? Okay. One way to measure the grain coming in would be to make a loaf out of it. But that's the ultimate reference, I suppose, but you know, we haven't got time to do that. We need to know the answer in five minutes. Oh. So a chap called um, Sven Hagberg created this method. The important thing that goes from a sample that's good for bread making flour to a sample that's bad for bread making flour is the fact that the, the seed has started to go down the process of germination. It started to produce the enzymes that it needs to break down those starches to glucose so it can use it in a respiratory process. Yes. Okay? And these, these enzymes, alpha amylase, um, they're the ones that cut the long carbohydrate chains up into shorter chains and into single sugar units. Yes. If you take a sample of grain that's been allowed to go a bit too far then the seed has produced this alpha amylase, and then when you make your solution for the Hagberg test, the enzyme in those seeds is getting released, and it's slicing up all of the starch chains to smaller sugar units, and then it's producing a less viscous solution. If you were then to use that flour to actually make a dough, that would directly correlate with the ability of the dough to, to rise or not. You alluded to the fact that some of these tests are fairly quick. Can we give us an idea of the kind of fairly quick? Protein and the, um, the moisture and the bushel weight and the hardness, that all goes into a sort of single instrument and that measures that within 30 seconds or so. Oh, wow. The Hagberg test is slightly longer because you've got that mixing process, but it's about five minutes. So a vehicle could arrive and you'd know within five minutes that... Absolutely, that's the intention, to get the vehicles turned around as, as rapidly as possible. The, the key element on Hagberg, which is different from all the others, is if you have, a, for example, a load that is 30 tonnes at 16% moisture and you've got a load at 14% moisture, you know, if you blend the two together perfectly, the moisture will equal out and you'll have 15% moisture because it's weight, weight for weight. Well, with Hagberg, it's a very different story because Hagberg, you're measuring an enzyme activity. And importantly... If you had a sample of 50 Hagberg wheat, it's going to be very poor for bread making, if you mix that sample of 50 Hagberg wheat with 300 Hagberg wheat, you potentially would have an entire bulk of 50 Hagberg. Because the enzyme activity could be hundreds of thousands of times higher in the seed with the 50 Hagberg than the seed with the 300 Hagberg. If you're going to blend Hagberg, it's not like for like, because the enzyme activity affects that. Got it. What I saw was a whole bunch of seeds running through shoots. This um, is a wheat cleaning plant. It basically enables us to take wheat from a sort of a standard tradable commodity into a, a human food use ingredient. In Camgrain, what we do is we take the soft wheat that's delivered in by our members and we'll put it through this cleaning process, which really just ensures that the grain is, is absolutely clean and ensures that the, the right size of grain is there for the, for the customer and there's no sort of dust or sand and all those sorts of things are all removed. Tell us about some of the sort of modules. There's a series of processes. There's a sort of sieving stage and then there's a, there's a process that sort of polishes the grain. All the while there's air aspiration taking the, the dust and the chaff away from the process. The key step in all of this is the colour sorter that sits at the very bottom of the process. And this incredible bit of machinery works um, a, a bit like in a lab you might have a flow cytometer measuring cells. Well it, it's a similar sort of idea to that. Effectively you have a wall of grain, like a waterfall, one grain thick, falling past a series of thousands of tiny cameras. 
And what this machine does is it's able to photograph every single grain. And the computer software behind that, you'll have built in the specification. So you've built in the specification for colour, for example. So if there's a grain that's the wrong colour, below the cameras are a series of air jets. So the camera detects a grain that's not suitable for the specification. The air jet will blast that grain the other side of the divide. So you've got the grain that you're accepting and the grain that you're rejecting as, as two options. And this thing runs at 20 tonnes an hour and sort of controls the whole process. And it allows you to have very, very good separation of the grains you do want and the grains you don't want. And we use that for sorting the colour. But it's also very important because it enables us to give very good assurance that we're able to remove non-ferrous items. For example, you would have metal checkers for checking for ferrous and non-ferrous metals. Okay. Um, but what about something like glass? Should a glass ever get into the process? How is that found? It's going to have a very different response on the camera than a piece of grain. Okay. You have to have these processes in place to ensure the quality. The grain that comes out of can grain goes straight to the factory where they're going to make the actual breakfast cereals, and it goes straight onto their production line. Yeah. All of these systems are in place, not just the machinery, the nuts and bolts, but the assurance, and it's referred to HACCP, the critical control point analysis, is all in, the, is all in place to ensure the quality. So there is a lab here? Yes, back to that. that's right. All of the cam grain sites have laboratories, so we're taking the samples of the grain on the way in to do all, all our bank of analyses on it to, to check the quality. So our farmer who's sent in his, his loads of grain, he can go online and, and check the, the quality of the grain he's sent in. Now this is incredibly useful for him because he might be combining in a field. He's sent in a few loads from it already. He, he picks up his iPhone and sees that he's lost the Hagberg on that field. What he's combining there, he's planted a group one, bread making, wanting to get the best money for it. But actually, it turns out, because of the weather or, or other conditions, that actually the Hagberg's gone on this field. So he can decide at that point, well, all right, well, I'll stop on this field, I'll move to another field. Uh, it allows him to respond. Also, looking at all the, the loads that he sent in, he can see the protein levels. He can adjust his scheme for his inputs for the next year. If he's way overshot the protein mark, perhaps spent too much on inputs. Maybe he can reduce his inputs. The, the data is incredibly useful for the farmers as well to understand the quality of the grain they're producing to refine their own processes, as well as, obviously, when we're delivering it, we need to know the quality that's going out so we meet all the specifications of people that are purchasing the grain. Thank you very much, Andy. Thanks there to Dr. Andrew Wingate of Camgrain. Thanks, Andy, for giving up so much time at what we're sure must be a very busy time of year. So what do you think, Niall? Well, I'm impressed by the technology for assuring the quality of the wheat. Did Andy tell you anything about the different varieties of wheat? Yeah, I learned that in this country we classify wheat according to the NABIM system. That's N-A-B-I-M. It's a national body. And out of the 40 varieties of wheat, and by the way, none of them are GM crops, as you might imagine, there are no GM wheat grown anywhere commercially in the world. There are 40 varieties of wheat and they put them into four groups. These are kind of interesting groups, although it's a bit long-winded. There's group one varieties, and these are the best things for milling and baking, and just behind them are group two varieties, also used for bread baking. Most of us know these group one and group two flowers in the supermarket as strong flowers. After these come group three varieties, which are the soft flowers for making biscuits and cakes and other flowers. And there's group four varieties, which is the wheat grown to feed animals. About 40% of the UK crop grows to feeding our chickens, cows and pigs, and probably me too. But tell us, Niall, 
the difference between these strong and weak flours. I thought you'd never ask, Roger. It's to do with keeping the bubbles in your bread, would you believe? Hard or strong wheat flour varieties produce dough which is elastic because it has a high gluten or protein content. If you've a bag of strong bread making flour in the cupboard, you'll see 12 to 14% protein on the label. That is, it's high in gluten. So, yeast grows on the sugar in the dough, it uses sugar to respire, making CO2 bubbles and making the bread rise. Gluten is like chewing gum and holds the carbon dioxide gas bubbles to produce a good spongy loaf and with a firm shape until the loaf is baked. If that goes wrong, i.e. if you use the wrong flour or forget the yeast or sugar, you end up without bubbles and something hard like a house brick. Uh And the soft flour, please tell us. Soft flour has less gluten and baking with it results in a crumbly, less chewy texture. Soft flour ranges from cake flour, which is the lowest in gluten, and pastry flour, which has a little bit more gluten than cake flour. Okay, so gluten. I'm always hearing about gluten, gluten gluten-free products. What is gluten? Aha, the famous gluten. As we said, gluten is the mostly protein part of wheat that makes the bread dough elastic, helping it rise and hold its shape. We've said it gives the final product a chewy texture. In fact, the word gluten in Latin, did you know this? It means glue. And gluten is not only found in wheat, it's also found in barley and rye. It's not found in rice, though, which is good news for those who are sensitive to gluten. That's handy to know. Well, thanks. We're going to put links to Camgrain on our podcast page. And also, if you look back through our podcast, we'll also put a link to a fascinating story about a company that develops better wheat seed for farmers. It's time to hear what Daniel's been thinking about, but not before a jingle. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. If you were listening over the summer, you'd have been introduced to our guest, Science Show presenter Daniel Edward. This week, he's been sat in his kitchen, musing about his microwave oven. Microwaves don't like metal, he says. But, as he also says... What's the thing made of anyway? I'm sure you, just like the rest of us, have been told at some point or another that you can't put metal in a microwave. Well, I'm currently in my kitchen having a rather late lunch, it's it's true, and I'm just about to put my beans into my microwave. Well, I have taken them out of the metal can and I'm not leaving uh, any metal items in there, but I could. And this is is because, well, let's face it, a microwave is made out of metal. So we shouldn't really be that surprised that some metal can go into microwaves. Now, what would happen if if this offending metal came into uh, contact with a microwave? We all know, we've all been told that there'd be large sparks and it would be potentially dangerous and uh, damaging to the microwave. So why can you have a metal thing which is... Unable to cope with metal. Well, the the walls inside a microwave form a a Faraday cage. And this is a completely closed-off unit that traps microwaves inside. And there is no opportunity for them to escape. Now, my microwave, and I, I would imagine yours as well, has holes in a grid formation at the front so that I can see in to see how my, uh, my beans are getting on. And... You'd imagine that this would be an issue. Surely the microwaves would escape 
but uh, apparently not. And this is because the microwaves are actually larger than the holes that have been cut into the uh, sheet of metal, the metal grid that's in front of the microwave oven. So whilst light rays can get through, microwaves can't. Otherwise, you'd get a pretty burnt face from looking in to see how your food's getting on. Well, microwaves are magnetrons hooked up to high-voltage sources. And then the microwaves themselves bounce around inside uh, the box until absorbed by something. And water or ceramics are particularly good at turning microwaves into heat. Metals, on the other hand, as we all know, are conductors of electricity, and they're pretty damn good ones at that. So they move around. They've got electrons that move around freely on the surface. And so dependent on the shape of the metal, uh, this may turn into heat uh, in a microwave, or it might not at all. And this is why it is possible to have metal in your microwave, so long as it is the right shape. You may also see some arcing of electricity. Now, why is this, and, and why has this warning come about that you should only use microwave-safe metals or, or even plastics? Well, the microwaves would hit the metal, then the free electrons on the surface become highly active. This pre uh, prevents the path of the microwave itself and causes the waves to be reflected instead of being absorbed. This isn't an issue in itself, that's exactly what the microwave oven itself is doing with its metal walls. But, if you have an irregular shaped piece of metal, such as a fork with its you know, multiple prongs, or even a piece of tinfoil, if you've forgotten to take that out, then the irregular form of it is going to send microwaves reflecting off in all different directions, and that's when you'll get this electric arcing which could, in certain cases, lead to large and damaging sparks from the offending metal to another electrical conductor with a lower potential, which is very often the microwave wall. And that's why you would get that uh, loud bang and perhaps a, a black scarring uh, on your microwave, which might make it unsafe to use. So whilst it is safe to use some metals of some shapes in your microwave, I would still recommend that you only use ones which say specifically on it, safe for microwave ovens, because even though scientifically it may be fine, you never know what slight irregularities are in your metal. And that is why, for my beans, I wasn't going to take the risk. Thank you, Daniel Edward, for the idea and for helping us use physics to stay safe in the kitchen. Glad you resisted the temptation to be reckless. We really should have more kitchen science. Yes, indeed. Coincidentally, there was a World War II kind of drama on the TV the other week, and it was all about the development of radar to give the advanced warning of when enemy aeroplanes were heading inland over England. That's really interesting, but what's the connection with microwaves? Well, the connection is to do with aircraft radar and microwave ovens using the same sorts of radio waves, but for different jobs. Now, looking this up, I've found that the first microwave oven came out of that World War II radar technology. It was on sale in 1946 and cost, in today's money, $50,000. It took another 30 years before the price came down to make this a mass market item today. And thank goodness it did. But how does it work? Well, substances in food absorb energy from the microwaves inside the oven. 
Molecules such as water molecules have a slight positive charge at one end and they have a slight negative charge at the other and they try to align themselves with the changing electric field of the microwaves. So you can think of that as a magnet lining up as you drop it into another magnet. Perfect. And as they align one way or the other, the molecules rotate and they hit other molecules and get them moving and so energy or heat is released. They call that dielectric heating, which is the thing that heats up your stuff in the microwave. The useful point to note is that the heating works better in liquids where the molecules can move. Much better than in ice where the molecules are kind of fixed and cannot move. That's why you can't defrost food as quickly as you'd like in a microwave. Defrosting has to happen more gradually because the molecules can't move and hit each other and produce energy in the same way. Okay, and I read somewhere that the heating was to do with the microwaves matching the resonance of water molecules? Yes, and I've read that too. And I've read that in so many different explanations, but apparently, although that could work, where the resonance of the waves and the water is kind of matched up, the actual water resonance happens at a much higher wave frequency, so that isn't the real explanation for what happens. There you go, another myth busted, Roger. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. And that's pretty much all for today's Science Show on Cambridge 105. In a few days' time, you'll find a podcast recording of the show at our website, www.cambridge105.fm. And of course, you can now pick up our podcasts on iTunes. Just search for 105 Science. Our next show on Cambridge 105 will be in two weeks on Saturday at 2.30pm. Yes, and if you want a reminder of that, follow us on Twitter at 105Science. Also, if you have a science event in town to promote or a question about science you'd like to share with us, you can email us on the email on science at cambridge105.fm. That's great, and that means that, of course, all we have left today is to say thank you to Andrew Wingate, and it's a goodbye from me, Mel Purcell. And bye from me, Roger Frost. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105.